0: I want to begin by just uh, thanking you for praying for me during these last couple of weeks while I was away in Indonesia. Um, And tonight in the concert of prayer, I want to be sharing a little bit more as we'll be devoting one or two units to praying for especially our workers who are there. But I just simply wanted this morning uh, extend to you from them their heartfelt gratitude for the investment that you make in sending me over uh, and not just once but now on a regular basis to that particular field. I would just simply mention one particular highlight for me was uh, on one night I had the privilege, simply as a pastor, of praying a blessing upon three couples that are going to be going to Aceh for at least six months. Aceh, if you remember, was that northernmost part of Sumatra that was worst hit by the tsunami. And Buzz and Myrna, of course, are one of that team, and they've already spent one week there living with their boys in a tent, just trying to discern what would be the best place for them to. Be. They're not going to an easy place. And so I had spent. Quite a bit of time with Buzz and Murna just talking about what's ahead of them. Uh, what was significant also was the makeup of this team. And you could see how God was putting that team together. Uh, one of the other couples, he happens to be a Green Beret. You know, At least that was his background. He had been in Indonesia before and he had gone back to the States. And his expertise is all in fishing and making boats. Well, that's exactly what those people need in that area. And now he's back there. And then another man who's, who and his wife are actually going to be the team leaders... He also had been in Jaya for a while, but had to go back to the States several years ago because their oldest daughter was having trouble uh, in her relationship with God. And so for 11 years, he was a pastor in Atlanta while God brought that daughter back to Christ. And now here as a pastor, he's going back to shepherd this particular team. So it's quite exciting to see the group of people uh, just gathered together. And it was also significant for another reason. I just uh, bless them as I bless you here. Uh, and... Uh, Myrna told me, she said, quite a few people came up to me afterwards and said, I wish I could be on that team because I'd like to be blessed like that. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for allowing me to learn how to bless people here by doing it well and not so well over several years in this place. But that's what you send me there for. That's what your investment of time and money and energy does. And with all of their hearts, they say, please say thank you to your congregation. So I want to make sure to do that first. Well, it's a very, very brief mini-quiz time back to last summer. Who remembers what this book was all about? Yes, Commander-in-Chief. Which book? Colossians. The book of Colossians, more than probably, other than the book of Hebrews, exalts the person of the Lord Jesus Christ than any other book in the New Testament. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Colossians together. As we focus upon the greatness and the majesty of Jesus. And in a sense, it is a very real natural progression from the series of messages on invitation to a spiritual process in preparing for our participation in the capital campaign that I preached before I left. If you remember from that series of messages, I said the focus was the joy and the glory of Christ as being the primary motivation for us to be involved in these kingdom initiatives. And now for the next six or seven weeks, we want to amplify that particular part and focus upon the greatness and the supremacy and the glory of Jesus Christ. Who were the Colossians and why did Paul write this particular era? Colossae was in what we know as modern day Turkey. Hundred miles inland along the Leander River from Ephesus. Nowhere near as famous as the city of Ephesus. One of Paul's colleagues, a man named Epaphras, had preached the gospel there and the church had been formed. But now the church was facing inroads with a significant heresy. And Epaphras had traveled all the way from Colossae to Rome where Paul was under house arrest. To give him the news of the trouble in Colossae. And Paul writes to the Colossian church. What was the nature of that heresy? We don't need to speculate. If we look at some of the warnings that Paul gives in the letter, we will get some idea of the Colossian heresy that they were facing. First of all, in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Verse 18, he says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility... And the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen. And his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So there was philosophical speculation about the nature of heaven and heavenly worship. That was one dimension of this heresy. Added to that was uh, ceremonial legalism. Chapter 2 verse 16. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. So to philosophical speculation was added uh, probably Jewish ceremonial law that had become uh, legalistic. And then thirdly, based on the eastern mystical doctrine that the body was evil but the soul was good, there were some drastic prohibitions that these people were imposing on the Christians. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with you because they are based on human commands and teachings. So the Colossian heresy was a complicated mixture of Greek philosophical speculation, Jewish ceremonial legalism, and Eastern mystical denunciation of the body. And into all of that they were trying to fit Jesus Christ into it. The saddest part of it was it was totally powerless to deal with real issues in life. For in chapter 2 verse 23 Paul says, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship. Their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, all this, this mixture, wise though it sounded, was absolutely powerless in bringing about real change in people's lives. The fundamental problem, says Paul, is they, the Colossians, or these people who were promoting this heresy, had lost connection with the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows and God causes it to grow. And so Paul, in order to help them counter this heresy, goes to the root of the problem and focuses the attention upon Jesus the head. Because that's the root solution. Get back into connection with Jesus in all his glory. That's the letter to the Colossians as a whole. And this morning we want to enter into the first 14 verses. Now even though it is an introductory section before Paul gets to the supremacy of Christ, which I will look at next week. As I looked at that passage, it occurred to me that in that, Paul gives us an exquisite exquisite prescription on how to inspire ourselves and others to grow spiritually. We all have to do, this is my calling as a pastor, as a preaching pastor, as a senior pastor, that's part of my responsibility to inspire myself and you as a congregation to grow spiritually. You as parents have that responsibility to your children. Those of you who teach our children in Sunday school. Those of us who are now working with our grades 6, 7 and 8 studying Colossians together. Whether it is adults who are teaching adult education modules. Whether it is people who are discipling others one on one. The context is all different. But all of us in one way or another are doing this business of stimulating ourselves and others to grow spiritually. And so what Paul has to say in these first 14 verses is a widespread application to all of us. And he begins with a greeting. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our father. Now Paul was in the house arrest when he wrote this. But he doesn't see himself as a prisoner. He sees himself as an apostle. Someone who's been called by God, chosen by God and sent out on a mission. That's how he sees himself. As for Timothy, he sees Timothy not as some young fellow who's 25 years younger than him and has a lot to learn from him. He sees him as his brother. And then as far as the Colossians are concerned, he calls them holy and faithful. And the word here, these are not primarily references to their character, although they will become those kind of people. The word holy comes from a root word which means to be set apart for a purpose. He sees them, he reminds them that they are are a special people who have been set apart for God. Similarly, the word faithful at this point is not a reference to their character quality of faithfulness, but that they are people of faith who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And so right in the first two verses, Paul zeroes in on the issue of identity. (laughs) Who we are in Christ. Apostle, chosen, called, sent out, holy, faithful brothers and sisters. He's going to do a lot of exhortation. He's going to do a lot of warning. He's going to do a lot of teaching in the books to come. But he begins with this focus on identity. Why? My mind went back to my first year in undergraduate school in India. Shortly before I became a follower of Christ, like most of the people who who were my friends, some of them were friends from school, we were all Indians from a Hindu background. But you know, we never thought of ourselves as Hindus. We never thought of ourselves in terms of our religious identity. In fact, we never spoke about it. We were engineering students. We had lots of fun together. We were friends. We played cricket, whatnot. That was our identity. Well, then when I became a follower of Christ and started sharing Christ with them, all of a sudden these people became very interested in Hinduism. And now they would talk about it too. They never talked about it before. What was going on? Here's what was going on. Though I'm only understanding it now. What was going on was simply that because I had now become a follower of Christ, that was a change that they didn't want. And they called upon their identities to resist change. And remember when Ken and Claire Bradley working in a limited access nation often described their new contacts as high in identity, low in practice. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about that and I've learned something new. And that is A firm grasp on our identities doesn't necessarily cause us to grow, but it prevents other things from coming in. And so Paul is going to be teaching them how to grow, but before that he says, Hey, the most effective way to resist the encroachment of this false heretical teaching is to get a firm grip on who you are in Christ. And so identity becomes a critically important issue. Before Paul goes to the positive side of growing, he tells us how not to grow, move in the wrong direction. And the way you do that, he said, is establish your identities first. And so for you and me, as we are involved in inspiring ourselves and others to grow, this becomes the first critical step. Remembering and reminding each other who we are in Christ. Now, You know, if this is true, if this is true that we are sent apart by God, if this is true that we are chosen people on a mission, if this is true that we are holy and faithful, if this is true that we are brothers and sisters, shouldn't we be seeing ourselves that way primarily? Shouldn't that be the primary set of glasses by which we should see one another in this church? And become skilled at reminding one another who we are in Christ. Simple greeting, but a powerful message in there. Now, having established that, Paul gets to more substantive issues, and so he tells them now what he's going to be praying. And the verses 3 to 8 is a prayer of thanksgiving. Read that together with me. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Ephapris, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Now, one of the things you're going to discover in Colossians is that every single phrase is important. This stuff is densely packed. You see, Paul's prayers are flowing out of his theology. Paul, Even when Paul gives thanks, he's unfolding theology. Because it, his prayers, his thanksgiving, is flowing out of an understanding of how the life of God filters into you and me. And so I'm going to have to put these in the form of a diagram so you can understand where Paul is going. So he begins, first of all, by thanking God because of their faith in Christ and their love for the saints. That's what he thanks God for. And then he says, your love for the saints is coming from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Now that's counterintuitive because our approach is so and so is so heavenly minded that there are no earthly use. You know, that's our approach. Our idea is, well, all these people are constantly thinking about heaven. They're the ones who are wasting time here they, when there's work to do. But the Bible seems to tell us exactly the opposite. It says the thing that released their love here on earth was their hope of what lay ahead for them. Uh, Again, I'm indebted as in so many aspects of theology to John Piper for clarifying this. Referring to the Hebrew Christians in in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, Piper writes this. He said the situation in that church was that some of the church members had been imprisoned and the rest were faced with the moral dilemma of whether to go underground and save themselves or whether to go visit these prisoners, in which case they would risk losing life and possessions. Verse 34 of Hebrews 10 describes what they did and why. For the author of Hebrews says, For you had compassion on the prisoners, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What was the power that drove them in love to the prison doors, knowing their houses might be plundered? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It was hope that drove them to love. Or to put it another way, it was heavenly mindedness that broke the power of worldly love for furniture and houses and security and freed the saints to risk their lives in love. Therefore I say it again, it is not heavenly mindedness that hinders love. When religious people fail to love, it is not because they have fallen in love with heaven, but because they are still in love with the world. Think about it. Their hope of heaven is what releases them to acts of love here. Because actually loving somebody costs. And there's a fear of letting that go. So then Paul builds on that. He said, I thank, you, I thank God for your faith in Christ, for your love for the saints, which, by the way, comes from your hope in heaven. And where did you learn that hope? He says, you heard and understood it when the gospel was preached. To you. When Epaphras preached the gospel to you, you didn't just hear it, you learned it. You paid attention to Epaphras until you learned what you were hearing, until you fully understood the gospel. And he calls it the word of truth, And he calls it the word of grace in truth. It is there that they heard about the hope that was stored up for them in heaven. Where Christ as the resurrected son of God had already gone. The future. The eternity that was secure for them. They heard it and understood it in the gospel. And that hope then produced the love. Paul then goes further. He says, and by the way, you're not alone in this. This gospel. This gospel that produced this effect in you. By the way, it's bearing fruit all over the world. For them, the world was Rome, the Roman Empire. And by the way, it's doing it in you as well. You see, the phrase gospel, especially in a global context, wasn't something new to them. In the Roman context, the proclamation of the gospel was associated with the advancement of Caesar's kingdom. So when some new territory was conquered by Rome, the gospel of Caesar was proclaimed. Meaning, Caesar is Lord, so now line up your lives with Caesar's will or else. That was the gospel. Now Paul is using that understanding and saying there's a new gospel because there's a new king. And it is this gospel of Christ that is being proclaimed all over the Roman Empire and it's bearing fruit too as people are falling into line with Christ, but not by force, not by threat, but by the power of the gospel itself. What, see, what, see, and Paul isn't just thanking God for it. He's telling the Colossians he's thanking God for it. What does that tell us? Because he wants to reinforce in them that in contrast to this mixed up heresy that seems to be promising so much wisdom, he said, think of the gospel. This gospel has already produced this fruit in you of faith and love that springs from hope. And this gospel is doing it all over the world. He is taking a global testimony, adding it to their local testimony and setting that against the shallowness of the heresy. That's what he's doing here. And of course, that's why when Priyanka comes and shares with us, it has the same effect. When she shared her little testimony with me earlier on in the week, I read it and got encouraged. Because this gospel is bearing fruit. It's bearing fruit over there in the Orient. It was bearing fruit in her life. Last week you heard about how it was bearing fruit in another country in the Silk Road. Two weeks before that you heard about how the gospel is bearing fruit all over in our community right here. The gospel is bearing fruit and therefore he says, don't set it aside. Everything else is heresy. Think back to what it is doing in your life. And so Paul is building upon their sense of identity by thanksgiving. Now as I... As I was thinking about this, Wednesday morning as I got down to actually fashioning the sermon, I'd done all my research and my study and I was getting down to fashioning the sermon, I thought, you know, it's a good idea to pray through this text. This whole thing is a prayer, so let me pray. And so I was praying through these prayers of thanksgiving and what would you expect? You'd of course expect that my heart would overflow with thanksgiving for all the things that God is doing and I'd be thanked, but that isn't what I found myself praying. I found myself thinking about the fact why I should be more thankful. I'm not thankful enough. Uh, I, this gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. I should be more thankful about that. Our church should be more interested. And All of a sudden, I caught myself and I said, what's going on? Here I am praying through a prayer of thanksgiving. Instead, I'm all exercised about all the things that have not happened yet. And God said to me, that's the message. That's the message. Affirmation comes hard. It, it, seems, it seems that we are built in such a way that we find it hard to affirm ourselves and we don't do a good job of affirming others either. We all seem to be very good at finding out what's wrong, what's not yet working in my life, what's wrong with my family, what's wrong with this church. And those things may be okay, but they need to be set in another context where we are also looking at what God is doing and being thankful for that. My mind went back to, a, to something that Eugene Peterson, my other favorite author, had read, written a few years ago. Now, he was writing it to pastors, so you need to filter it through that context. Because initially, you're going to be shocked by what I said, because I was shocked. He said, pastors, you need to see your people as sinners. Well, that was a little bit of a shock. I said, what do you mean? And he said this to me in, in his book. He didn't say it to me, he said it in a book, but God said it to me. <laughs> he said, if you don't see your people as sinners, you're going to expect them to behave like saints. And when they behave like sinners, you're going to get angry, you're going to get hurt, you're going to get upset. He said, but if you see them like sinners, because that's what we all are, anytime God does the work, you will be thankful. And he said, you need to become spies of grace in the lives of people. And I just love that phrase. Become spies of grace in the lives of people. Paul was an excellent spy of grace. So long before he got to exhorting them in some way, and he's going to exhort them, and we'll get to that. Change doesn't need to happen. But before that, Paul is a spy of grace and to identity he had affirmation. And so that's the next element for us. If we're going to inspire ourselves to grow spiritually, if we're going to inspire our children, our co-workers, if we're going to inspire people in this church to grow, let's first reinforce our identities and then let's become spies of grace. Let's rejoice. And, you know, and I think you can tell this from your own experience. When people come to me to exhort me to grow, Whether it's my wife or whether it's people in this church. It's a lot easier for me to take it if I also know that these people are looking at all the good things that are happening and are rejoicing in it. It's a lot harder when there isn't even a mention or a suggestion or an idea that they know anything good is happening and all they're interested in is what's not happening. We're all made that way and that's why affirmation becomes such an important part of growth. Now with that Paul gets to the other issue which is change is still necessary. Because we affirm doesn't mean people are perfect. Because we affirm doesn't mean things don't have to change. And so after reinforcing our identities, which deals with the resistance to the wrong kind of change, then comes affirmation which builds the proper environment, the receptivity for the right kind of change. And so now Paul prays in verses 9 to 14 for their growth. Read this with me together. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you thought the previous passage was densely packed, it's nothing compared to this. So I'm going to just take this one apart and build it block by block. So again, Paul's prayer. Just as his prayer of thanksgiving was steeped in his theology, his prayer for growth is steeped in his understanding of how the ways of God work in us. So, let's trace the heart of the prayer. The essence of his prayer is that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Christians talk a lot about needing to find out God's will. And it would seem Paul would agree with them. Paul would agree with them that that focus is a good focus. We need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. But what does it take to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Paul says, you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will through spiritual wisdom and understanding. What's he talking about here? Remember a couple of years ago in the Listening to God series, I shared, I talked about the fact how so many of our, so much of our Christian preoccupation with knowing God's will is, a mis, is misplaced. Because the real issue is, how do we make wise decisions? And recently somebody had given me a series of tapes uh, of messages preached by a man named Tim Keller in Redeemer Church in New York. It was on the book of Proverbs. And his first message on Proverbs, he made me think of those series of sermons again. Because he said this, and follow me carefully. He said the moral law is is irrelevant to a lot of our everyday lives. That doesn't mean the Ten Commandments aren't important or they're not binding. They are. And we as Christians do break some of them. We sometimes tell lies at the customs or on our income tax. We dabble in pornography at times and we dishonor our parents. There are many ways in which we break those Ten Commandments. It's not that they're irrelevant, it's that there's no mystery about them. If someone thrusts a customs form at you and says, please declare everything you bought, you don't need to call your pastor for advice. Nor do you need a Greek book or Hebrew to understand what the word means. It's simple, you don't need wisdom and understanding to obey the Ten Commandments. They're plain and straightforward. You do them or you don't do them. In, but most of life doesn't involve those kinds of decisions. What about questions like, do I do engineering at Queens or do I do journalism in Ottawa? How much do I participate in this capital campaign? Should I quit my job, take a sabbatical for a while or find another job or stick it out here? Should I get married or not get married? They're all moral. And the Ten Commandments are quite irrelevant. And most of life involves decisions like that. Therefore, to know God's will, we don't need rules, we need spiritual wisdom and understanding. And if you do that, says Paul, you will live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him. And then Paul goes on in this prayer to give us four marks of what this life would look like. He's praying, he's praying all of these things and he's teaching through his prayer. So if we are filled with the knowledge of God's will through this kind of spiritual wisdom and understanding, and later on in the book he will keep amplifying it because spiritual wisdom and understanding comes throughout Colossians over and over again. So we'll learn more about this as we go along. We live a life that's worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. What does that kind of a life look like? And in the grammar, there are four participles. And participles always qualify what went on before. So a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him is now described in four participles. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God. In English, they all end with I-N-G, the participles. Being strengthened with power. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Bearing fruit, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened and giving thanks to the Father are four marks of this kind of a life that comes from spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let me just briefly comment on each them. Bearing fruit in every good work. What's that? How do we do that? Well, largely we do it through the use of the gifts that God has given to us to serve other people. The essence of good work is mutual service through the unique abilities that God has given to you. I am bearing fruit in good work by preaching right now. And preparing for that preaching by the studying I did during the week. Or talking to people. Priyanka bore good fruit by going halfway across the world. Those who are working with our grades 6, 7 and 8 right now. Studying the book of Colossians. Are using their gifts and bearing good bearing fruit. Last week's message from Karen Clarkson was what? Blessed to be a blessing. So you bear good fruit in every good work. That's the heart of our life that pleases God. Now, secondly, it says you grow in the knowledge of God. It's interesting that as you obey God through a knowledge of his will, you get to know more about God. What did you hear in Priyanka's testimony over and over again? For the first half of it was how she was changed, not how the people over there were changed. They were. And what did she say? She said, before I went, God was too small. Now, God is much bigger. So, has she got a knowledge of God now or not? That's what happens. When we bear fruit in good works, God becomes larger. We learn new things about God. I had an email this past week from a lady in this congregation. and She's given me permission to share. Uh, She said, as I've been wrestling with what to do, how to participate in the capital campaign. She said, God brought this to my mind. She said, I've been tithing regularly from my net income. But God has been prompting me that one of the ways I can release some additional resources is by tithing from my gross income. And she said, "But but the numbers wouldn't add up. I didn't see how I could do it. But God really spoke to me about it. So she said, I made that pledge and I've started. And then she went on to tell me in her email how through totally unexpected sources. I think it came from a different way to get insurance for her car. She said, God not only made up the difference, but even more than that. And she, by her act of good work, which is a very different kind of good work, has now come to know and experience God as provider in material ways in which she never knew before. So in all of these examples, as we bear fruit in good works, we grow in the knowledge of God. Now, this kind of a life where we increasingly are filled with the knowledge of God's will through spiritual wisdom and understanding, bearing fruit and good work, growing in the knowledge of God, doesn't mean life is easy. Damien talked about that. Therefore, there's a third element to this. Being strengthened. Being strengthened with power according to his glorious might. And if you were to literally translate the original, it is being empowered with power according to his glorious power. Paul doesn't want us to miss the message. So, this kind of a life is a life that requires power. Power for what? I mean, you might say, wow, to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that must be some big task. <laughs> no, he, he says being strengthened with power, so you just might have endurance and patience. Damien's got to stick it out for another two weeks. That takes endurance and patience. Every one of us needs endurance and patience. You know why? Because this kind of a life to be filled with the knowledge of his will to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding to live a life that pleases God to be bare fruit in good works to grow in the knowledge of God doesn't last for one week nor for one year it's for the rest of your life. What that gal has learned and God's call upon her life to tithe from a different perspective isn't going to be just for one year isn't going to be just for three years it's going to be for the rest of her life. As we grow in the knowledge of God, we're adding on things that are going to continue for the rest of our life. Which means we're going to need endurance and we're going to need patience and we're going to be strengthened by God. And then fourthly, Paul says, by the way, there's one more very important thing. Some people endure and let the whole world know they're enduring. (laughs) Paul says, endure while giving thanks joyfully. And that's where the fourth element comes in. Bearing fruit in good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with his might so that you might endure with patience. And by the way, while you're doing it, joyfully giving thanks to God the Father. And where can that come from? It's what God said to Damien. You're complaining? Okay, go ahead and worship me. There are things that you can still give me thanks to God for no matter what happens. And Paul mentions three things in there. He said, first of all, you've been rescued from darkness. God has rescued you from the darkness. The darkness of what you were like before the gospel came to you. Because the message of the gospel is a message of light the light shone in the darkness so he says remember you the fact that you heard and understood the gospel means you have been taken out of darkness and into light that is an unbelievable change that could never have had you could never have done it yourself so be thankful for that secondly he has brought you he has brought you out of darkness into light and he has brought you out of the kingdom of satan into the kingdom of his son and he amplifies that specifically what does that mean he says you have redemption and forgiveness in him We've been taken, removed from the um, slavery to sin. To a glorious sonship with God. We're no longer being ruled by a tyrant. We have a loving father. We're no longer living lives in the courtroom before a judge. We're living it in the living room with a father. And we learned all of that two or three years ago. And he said, as a result of that, you have been qualified to share in the inheritance. What is that inheritance? This hope of heaven that is waiting for you. Not the least of which is that this whole process... Of growing in the knowledge of God's will. Through spiritual wisdom and understanding. Living a life that pleases God. Isn't something that's going to end the day we die. It's going to continue on for all eternity. If I had to never preach another sermon in my life. I'd continue studying. You know why? Because I plan to do it for all eternity. Those of you who teach. Do it with all of your heart. Because you're going to be doing it for all eternity. For all of eternity we're going to be filled with more and more spiritual wisdom and understanding. For all of eternity, we're going to grow more and more in the knowledge of God. The only thing that we won't need there is endurance and patience. That's the hope of heaven that is for us. Now, the most important thing to me about this is that Paul prays this and he tells the Colossians that he's praying for it. Because that's very important when it comes to the question we're asking, how do you inspire growth? Why? Because when Paul tells the people that though he desires this for them, he is not just preaching it to them, and he will in the next chapters of Colossians. He says, I'm praying to the Father, because that tells the people who he is trusting in to make the growth happen. That is critically important when it comes to inspiring people to grow. You know why? Because if the person who is trying to inspire me to grow and change is not somebody who is depending upon God, They are more likely to get angry, manipulative, irritating, when I resist, as I might. But if I know that the person who is exhorting me to grow, first of all has affirmed my identity, (laughs) that has affirmed the things that God is already doing in my life, and says I'm thanking God for that, and then says here's how you need to grow, and by the way this is what I'm praying for you. That tells me that that person is trusting God. And if the person who is inspiring me to grow is trusting God, he or she is far less likely to become manipulative, have hidden agendas, because it's not up to them anyway. It's an issue of receptivity. My experience on the 25 years of pastoring is that people respond to truth that is prayed much faster than truth that is preached. I don't know if you ever had that experience. I often find that after 55 minutes of counseling, I do 5 minutes of praying at the end. And, and we make far more progress in the last five minutes than we do in the first short five minutes. Not that the two are unrelated, but somehow the same truth that is resisted when people preach it at them, they melt when people are praying to a God of that truth. Why? Why? I think it has to do with the trust issue. It has to do with the fact that you turn your attention back to God, not to Paul. And so let's add that as a third dimension. We're going to be inspiring growth in one another. Let us remember and remind each other who we are in Christ. Let us become spies of grace so we can remember and remind each other of what God has done and is doing and thank God for it. So in other words, not just a formula. You have to feel the gratitude. And then let us pray that God will grant them spiritual wisdom and understand. There's a whole lot of practical outflows of this that I've put out in the study guide for you to think about and translate them into individual people in your lives. But what I wanted to do for this morning was to do just what Paul did. I'd like to pray for you. Because that's what this text is all about. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus I'm just so thankful that we are the church of Jesus Christ we are brothers and sisters in you thank you that each one of us has been called from out of darkness into light that each one of us has been translated into the kingdom of your son that in you we are a redeemed community we are a forgiven people in your presence And that you have qualified us to share together. That we're going to be together with one another. (coughs) For all eternity. And so we thank you Father. That that's how you see us. And this morning we want to celebrate who we are in you. How good to be able to say that we are in Christ. And in a few moments when we sing about you Jesus. I I pray, I pray, Jesus Christ, that as we exalt you, that we will know, we will feel in the depths of our heart that we are planted together with this Jesus. That we are united with you in your death and in your resurrection. That we are in you. And nobody can deny that. And that when you see us, you see us in Christ. And let that become an increasingly dominant perspective. I also thank you, Lord Jesus, for all the things that you are doing in our church and in the lives of the people here. I thank you for people like Priyanka and for Tim Strider, who's back. I thank you for Karen Clugston. I thank you for Scott Wheels and for his team. I thank you for NeighborLink Ministries as they're reaching out to the poor in our community. Thank you for Buzz and Myrna and Wally and Bev and Andy and Janet and others who halfway around the world are going into such difficult conditions because they want to bear fruit in every good work. I thank you for faithful teachers of our children. I thank you for those who pray for one another, those who are uh, counseling and walking people into change and growth. I thank you for our worship teams, Father, that, that take time and, from their own agonizing encounters with you, put together worship services that bless us. I want to thank you for all those with the gifts of service who work behind the scenes who so often go unnoticed and unappreciated but without whose work this ministry might guide to a (coughs) halt we're thankful for some of our young people who are excited thank you for these 25 people who are working with Uche in our day camp ministries and for their excitement for their commitment To take the gospel to people in our community. So they can be called out of darkness into light. (coughs) I thank you for these faithful God stories that you are writing in the hearts of so many people. As they keep participating in the spiritual process. that, That we are in the midst of right now. And then for this reason. Because you are already at work in us. Because this gospel is at work all around the world and in us. We would dare to pray, O God, that we might be filled with the knowledge of your will. That you might lavish upon us in Jesus Christ spiritual wisdom and understanding. That we might become men and women who hunger to be wise people. That we will stop living by knee-jerk reactions. But we'll come to you because we want to live a life that is pleasing to you. We want to be filled (coughs) with that wisdom. We want to do good works, Father. We want to bear fruit in our lives and the lives of one another. (coughs) We want to grow in our knowledge of you, Lord Jesus. We want you to become bigger in our lives like you have in Priyanka's life. We want you to strengthen us with power according to your glorious might. That we might have endurance and patience. That we might stick to it over the long haul and not give up, Father. I pray especially for those who are waiting for loved ones to come back to you. For those who are struggling with grief and loss. May they be strengthened with might according to your glorious power. May you do it in proportion to the perseverance that you are calling them to. And then, oh God, in all of that, will you give us a spirit of joy. That when, when we have a tendency to look at what we don't have. That we might see the, the colossal gift of redemption and of salvation and of forgiveness. Make us men and women who are good at affirming one another. And in that context of affirmation and gratitude may we become agents of change and growth. In Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, actually about a year ago, I was reading a book by another favorite author of mine, his name is David Hanson. The book was called Long Wandering Prayer. Uh, He did a lot of his ministry in small churches in Billings, in in Montana, uh, Belling, uh, Montana. And like I walked the ravine here, he used to do trout fishing on the Bitterroot River. And uh, he would often do prayer walking there. And uh, Fridays, uh, he said, was a special day because he said, uh, I would have many questions. I would ask God many questions. So some of them I'd get answers, some of them I wouldn't. So that's the way it is. He said, but well, there was one question for which I would not go back until he gave me the answer. Every Friday. He said, I would walk that river, ask him this question. How will the sermon defeat Satan on Sunday? And when I got the answer to that question, he said, I would go back. You know. So that's a good question. I asked myself that maybe not as religiously as he does, but I ask it regularly from God. He gave me a very clear answer for this time. And that's my benediction for you. We will defeat the enemy as we become men and women. Who have eyes, spies, become spies of grace. And that's my blessing for you. That God will bless you with eyes to see every evidence of the grace of God. That is already at work in the lives of people around you and in this church. And then tell them and thank God for it. Go in Jesus' name.